This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Mbolo Mbue, author of the novel, How Beautiful We Were. I grew up in Africa in the 80s and the 90s, and I was very fascinated by revolutionaries. And and there were lots of revolutionaries who were celebrated um, when I was a child. We'll be back with Mbolo Mbue in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents the continuation of close to eight years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions and craft, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron, which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it to the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and a monthly newsletter. In addition, there are surprise thank you gifts that I offer when you enroll as a patron and spontaneous mailings like a bookmark all my patrons received this January, embedded with flower seeds. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. I assure you, even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me in the production of this show. So why not make today the day to show your support? Why wait? Beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. Thank you for being here with me today, right now, in this moment. And on to the show. My guest today is Mbolo Mbue author of the New York Times bestseller, Behold the Dreamers, which won the Penn Faulkner Award for Fiction and was an Oprah's book club selection. Mbue is a native of Cameroon and a graduate of Rutgers and Columbia University and currently lives in New York. Her new novel, How Beautiful We Were, is set in a fictional African village called Kasawa and is told in various points of view, including from the collective of the children of the village. The people of Kasawa are living in fear and experiencing declining health and even death as an American oil company is degrading the water and the environment. At the center of the novel is Tula, who grows up to be a revolutionary in an effort to save her village, the land, and her people. We began the discussion with Mbolo Mbue sharing what she was thinking about most when she began How Beautiful We Were, which isn't just about environmental justice, but also about female power, family bonds, corrupt governments, and colonialism. My original inspiration was to write about people fighting back. So that was, um, that was the first thing that came to mind. I, I grew up in, in Africa in the 80s and the 90s, and, and I was very fascinated by revolutionaries. And, and there were 
lots of revolutionaries were celebrated um, when I was a child. I remember I had a T-shirt that had um, a famous African revolutionary. He was the president of Burkina Faso. His name was Thomas Sankara, and I had this T-shirt. And whenever I walked around with that T-shirt, people would stop me to say, oh, let us look at his face. Let us watch him. He was, he was killed. He was, he was murdered. Um, so when, after he died, this is, that was when I was walking around with the T-shirt, and people would stop me to look at his face and worship him. And so I, I, I saw revolutionaries and activists and protesters as some sort of rock stars. Um, so when I um, started writing this story, it came from that place um, that had this fascination with people who sacrifice so much for what they believe is a struggle for, for justice. And, and so I, I, I created this village um, and these characters who spend many years fighting against um, this corporation. So everything else that you mentioned earlier came from that. It came from that, that fascination. But of course, nothing exists in a vacuum. Um, the, the village is a is, is quite is a is a patriarchal community. Um, the village lives is in a country that was colonized. It has um, the president of their country is a dictator, um, and so there's there's various issues going on. Especially the fact that this oil company comes and and drills for oil and in the process um, pollutes their land. So there are various issues going on there that the village is trying to fight. Um, but, and so I had to tell a complete story, right? As, as, as a novelist, it's important to me that, I, that I, I put everything in its proper context. And so that is why I, the, the story needed me to touch on all those other elements. But the heart of it was, what does it mean to take a stand against a very powerful foe? And what are the costs that comes uh, that comes with all that. That was the question you began with, and it is the through line of the story. But I'm wondering, sometimes when you're a novelist and you start with a question, other questions come up. And I wonder if that became the dominant question for you, or if there were other questions that either rose to equal level or maybe mm-hmm. superseded that for you, which doesn't mean that, that, that the novel is about that other question, but it could be a question that just obsessed you. I'm not sure. I think I think the the one question that certainly came a lot was the the, the issue of environmental degradation, because when I started this novel, the oil company was there, but I I didn't really explore environmental degradation as much. I started this novel in 2002, um, and I really while the villagers were not happy with this oil company, that was not something that I explored uh, explored to a large extent. Um, but as I wrote further, I started thinking a lot about what is it like to live in an environment that has been so contaminated, and, and it pushed me to do a, a, quite a bit of research on oil exploration, on oil wells and oil fields and pipelines, and, and just what happens in an environment that has been contaminated, what does it look like? Uh, so certainly um, the environmental angle was came from me being living in America and living and writing this novel at a time when uh, many of us are concerned about the climate overall and also our immediate environment and about our choices. Um, so that was something that that, that came, uh, and also the the voice of the children. I when I started this novel, I wasn't thinking. Um, it was told. It was always told from the point of view of Tula, who was the child. So when I started the novel, the first draft, it was all in Tula's voice. The first. The, you know, several drafts was all in Tula's voice. But 
as I got um, deeper and deeper into the story, when I came back to it in 2016, I started thinking a lot about what is it like to be a child in an environment that has been so polluted, and what is it like to be a child in a world in which you feel as if the people in power are not doing enough to protect you. And then it morphed into being a communal story. And I feel like, I mean, you have chapters from various individuals, and then you have these chapters that go through that are communal, that are talking from the children's voice. Mm -hmm. And it is like life in this village is really communal. And so I wanted to just ask you, not just about the writing voice, which I I do want to ask you about, but also writing communal stories and living in community like that. And I don't know if your life was in community like that before you came to America. I didn't live in a, in a village like Kosawa, which is a village in the story. I um I, I grew up in, I'm, I am from a town called Limbia, which is a, by African standards, a fairly cosmopolitan little city. Um, but I did spend my early childhood in villages. And, and it's not uncommon for... um in African cultures to have a strong sense of community, which is something that I certainly did not see to the same extent in America. Um, but no, so I, I, it was important also that I, that I, that I recognize that this is a story about, uh, this, was a, this was an issue that everybody was dealing with, right? It wasn't just one family dealing with the, with the, with the environmental degradation. It wasn't just um, one child getting sick. It was a lot of children getting sick and a lot of, a lot of a lot of parents dealing with this nightmare. The villagers all drank from the same well. Um, they walked around. They, they sat together in the same village square. So because it was a small community, I, I could have easily just told one family's experience. That's true. But I also wanted to show why it was important for them to fight together and 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 to show what really they were fighting for. Because they weren't just fighting for for a piece of the earth, right? They're not just fighting for, oh, we just want to stay on this land. They're fighting to, to they're fighting for the essence of who they are. They are their ancestors. They believe that their ancestors got this land um, handed to them by 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 spirit, and that that the ancestors pass it on to them, and they have to pass it on to their children. And we see the children praying and hoping that they would die there. So it wasn't a matter of well, we just want to live comfortably. Is the fact that we want to be able to live happily on our land, and that was a dream that they all shared together, um, and they all had this deep love for their place. So that is that is why it was important for me to 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 show the whole show from a from a community angle, but also to show the individual cause because it's not enough to just show um, just one big community. The community is made of individuals. So I wanted to show these various individuals, which is why I zeroed in on the family of the girl Tula who goes up to lead the struggle against this whole company. And what about writing in the communal voice and the we? Was that a challenge or did it come easily to you? It, it did not come easily to me, no. I uh, for the for the most most of the years I was writing this novel, I wrote it in the first person um, voice, which was Tula. So Tula is the only one telling the whole story, and um, and then when I came back to it in 2016, I I was thinking a lot about children, and that was because you know, Sandy Hook had happened and Flint, Michigan had happened, and I was thinking a lot about what it's like to be a child. And I always had that first sentence, the first sentence, we should have known the end was near. I always had that first sentence. I'd had it for many, many years. And I I, um, I sort of 
you know, veered from that first sentence plural back to first to uh, first person singular. Um, but when I went back to it in 2016, I said to myself, you know what, I'm just going to go with this and see where it takes me. I, I had also read a few years before Julio Sukas' The Buddha in the Attic, which is one of my favorite novels. And that novel is told entirely in the first person plural. And that was the first time I read the novel in the first person plural, and I was blown away. So certainly I was inspired by what Julio Sukas did. And, that, um, and so when I started writing it, I, I found myself enjoying it, and I said, I'm just going to go with it. But I also knew that I had to look at it, the individual um, perspective. So that is why I decided to balance it between the first person singular and the first person plural. It's interesting you were saying that, um, you know, you don't find life in America in the same communal way as you did in Africa. And that um, that seems like an it's a tension, I think, that must exist in village life. It existed in your village life, even if it wasn't always um directly expressed and you need tension in novels like for instance you know it because it's a patriarchy maybe the women wanted something that the that the men didn't or um you know Tula goes off to America and we can talk about that where she learns maybe more about individualistic nature and I just wondered if you wanted to comment on any of that yes 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 I think that that is certainly um and that is also part of the tension between this village and this American oil company, because they, they have very different values, right? This corporation is very much looking out for its profit. <laughs> it is not thinking, well, we own the earth, let's preserve the earth, because the earth is, you know, we all as humans, you know, the earth is our community. They're not looking at it from that angle. Whereas the village has a value of um, what is yours is mine, this is all this is all of us together and let's take care of it. And so, yes, certainly um, that, that emphasis on, on the fact that we are all connected and this is, we are all in this together is, is not something that I saw right away in America. And I think that, um, I mean, and it doesn't mean anything, right? It's just human nature is human nature. I just think it's a matter of culture. I think when you live in a, in a, in a small environment and you're all there together and, and, and you, you share so much together, it's hard to not have a close-knit community. I mean, there are many, many people in America who I've met, and they said, I grew up in a very close-knit community. They grew up in all these suburbs and, and little places that they thought, thought was very close-knit. So I, I just think it's a matter of when humans, um, they, they have a lot at stake, right? They, all, they have this this this, this um, um, shared dreams, uh, and, and hopes, and it, and it's all connected, so it, it creates a stronger sense of community. I'm wondering, you, you mentioned that the Buddha in the attic was a big influence on you when you were writing this, and mm-hmm. um, I know that Song of Solomon has been a big influence in, in you coming to writing, and so I wanted to ask you just about the power of books to change your life, and mm-hmm. it sounds like that happened, but you can tell me, um, and maybe it's happened more than once. Yeah, no, certainly. I, um, I, I imagine like you also. We, I, I grew up being very. I grew up as a very bookish kid. Um, I, I read a lot. I was very fascinated by books, but I never ever considered writing. People said to me, "Oh, as a child, did you write?" I don't think I ever wrote anything. Anything besides what I had to write for school. Um, I also. Um, yeah, I also wrote letters when I came to America. I wrote a lot of letters, but. 
um, I certainly didn't consider writing until I read Song of Solomon's Song of Solomon. But then I tell people that I am a reader who writes, so because my writing comes from my inspiration from from other writers and uh, the African writer Ngugi Wationgo is one of my big inspirations. He's, he he wrote books like um, Devil on the Cross and Matigari, and those are books about Africans you know, pushing um, and trying to take a stand. Um, and so uh, even as a child, I was very fascinated by stories and, and by, by what, reader, what writers were, were, were doing. And didn't know any writer. I didn't consider the, the fact that I could be a writer myself until I read Song of Solomon. And, and once I read that book, then I started reading other books that certainly you know, opened my eyes to, 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 to what other writers were doing. And I knew that I had to find my own way. Right? I, I, I wasn't going to be like anybody else. I had to find my own way. But so when I read Gabriel Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, that was the first time that I you know, encountered magical realism. And it very much reminded me of, of my town where there was a great deal of um, respect for, super, for supernatural events. And people believe that you know, supernatural events happened. And obviously, it's different from what Garcia Marquez does in, with magical realism. But it is, it is also that, that um, seeing, seeing, seeing other writers you know, be so free and go where they wish to go, that, that certainly inspired me to be free and go where I wanted to go. So the structure of this novel, for example, I haven't seen anybody do anything like that, but I knew that I wanted to tell the story of a community and also of the certain individuals, and of a community and also a, a group of children and a family and a, and a movement. And so for me to do that, I had to find a, stru- a structure that would work for it. Um, so it's, it's the books I read, they are, they are, they are what um, opened my eyes to what is possible and what showed me the way to say, go ahead and find out what is possible for yourself also. Um, I have never taken a writing class. I've, I, I don't have a, 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 an MFA or anything, um, but I think that you know, books can be your own writing class. And I wish I had taken writing classes in college because that would certainly have helped me, um, but I didn't. So, so my education just came from all the books I read. When you went to write this, why was it important for you to make the choice to make it set in Kosawa, which was fictional? I wasn't thinking about the country when I went to write it. I was thinking about Kosawa and Kosawa only. Um, I was thinking about this village. So when I first went to start writing it, I was thinking, um, I'd like to write about this particular village. And, and, I, and I created the village. And it wasn't important to me to force to force the village to fit in a particular country, that wasn't important because I, I used I I I um I was inspired by events in in uh, different parts of the world. I was inspired by events in different parts of Africa. So I um I I I, I wasn't interested in somewhat making Kosawa into something that was not real, so that, so that it would fit anywhere. So I guess my point is that it was more important that I that I focus on Kosawa and make it real as opposed to try to, um, I don't know, lighten it or whatever so that it can fit in a real country. Uh, and the country ended up becoming also important to the story because um, the country had also been through its own share of struggles. And so 
I, 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 while I put the country somewhere on the west coast of Africa, similar to where Cameroon is, it is not Cameroon. Um, uh, but it does share, it, it does share um, um, this, the geography of Cameroon, and it just it does share um, certain certain elements like you know the sense of community, which I also grew up around. One of the things that seemed very important to this village of Kasawa was their origin story, that they were Mm -hmm. descended from a leopard. Can you talk Mm -hmm. a little bit about the origin story and its importance for this village and maybe for the book itself? Well, it's like that American saying, right? I don't know if it's an American saying, but I mean, Americans, I feel like I heard people here saying it over and over. If you don't know where you're coming from, you don't know where you're going to. Um, and so that is that is a big part of what Kosawa is about. They know where they're coming from. They know that they 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 are somewhat um, the the descendants of 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 a leopard, and so they have this leopard blood in them, and they are strong and invincible. Um, and so that is also what gives them that sort of audacity to fight against an American oil company. Not that they had it, because in the beginning you could see that they felt very defeated, and it took. It took a madman to awaken them to the idea that they could fight. Um, but yes, I think that having a strong sense of who you are and where you're coming from, it certainly gives you that that courage to stand up. Uh, and 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 that is why I, it was important that I show not just the struggle, but the history of Kusawa from the moment he was founded by by these three brothers who made a pact with the leopard to to everything that they went through from being spared um, from the slave raiders to to having um, to having having um, Europeans come to take the young men to 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 go tap rubber to having a dictatorship a dictator as their president like to show everything that they've been through and how much they have withstood over the years and why they believe that they can still prevail. Um, so that origin story was was important to put in the context who they are and why um, and why they were willing to risk so much for their for, for for their future. And I think too what you mentioned earlier that if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going, right. is this idea in carrying an origin story on that you know, the question of what passes on from generation to generation. And I felt like that was a major theme of the book. Yeah, yeah. This is, I mean, the story is told, um, the part that is told by Tula's family, we, we get to see three generations of the family, her grandmother, her mother and her uncle, and she and her brother. Uh, and, and, and there's a lot of emphasis on on the future, right? They, and this is a story that also deals with the past. People are trying really hard to hold on to the way things are, you know, because of the past, because of where they come from. But there's also a big emphasis on the fact that we have to 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 preserve things for the future generations. So we have to to pass on these stories. And 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 storytelling is a very big part of it. You see, mothers telling their their children's stories, and like Tula. Tula's grandmother talks about when her own grandmother told her the story about when the, the slave raiders passed by and the village was spared. And so these stories get passed on to two uh, generations. And it is also a big part, like you said, of, of that identity. And when you know the stories of your people, 
when you know the stories of what they've been through and the sacrifices that they made for you to have the life that you have, you have a, a, a greater sense of pride in who you are, and, and I believe a, a, a stronger commitment um, to keep holding on to, to that which you believe is true to, true for you. Yes, and so when the villagers got pushed to the edge, they they fought back. And you said that was, you know, what was interesting to you at the beginning. So there were some oil men from this company. As you said, um, the company is called Paxton. And as you mentioned, this village that was so beautiful on the banks of a river, the river was turning green. All the kids were sick. They couldn't drink the water. People were dying. Kids were dying. They were coughing. And when the oil men came into town, they decided that they've just had enough, although it was kind of a singular decision that everyone went along with. Basically, mm-hmm. they decided to take hostage, these men. Mm-hmm. It was like they were at the brink. They had nothing else to do. And right. it actually took the crazy man to do right. that. And I'm not <laughs> putting those words in his mouth. That's how you identified him as the crazy man in the village named Conga. Why was it Congo? Yeah, yeah. So Conga is... Uh... He's a village madman, <laughs> and and certainly when the story um, starts, he's he's not he's at the, he's at the, he's at the outskirts of the village, you know, physically and metaphorically. He doesn't he's not he's not he's not taking part in the village life as much because he's he's mentally ill, um, and even the children in the village they, they mention how they used to make fun of him because it, it's not uncommon in many societies for the mentally ill to be treated poorly. Um, and even for a village like this, which is very has very strong, you know, um, sense of community, the adults are, are, are kind to him. But children, being children, they they do not exactly treat him very well. But it it, it he is the one who decides uh, with the clarity he has from his mental illness, which is I believe that you know just because you're mentally ill doesn't mean you don't have clarity. The clarity he has that he. Um, he 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 decides. He tells everybody to to join him in this plan, and right away, you know, it, it, there's no way of knowing how this is going to end. Right? His his idea is that the village kidnaps kidnap the old men. Um, but I, I I was fascinated by. I am always fascinated by the idea of madness and and how it takes a certain level of madness to to bring around change and. That I, I got that idea from a quote by the, the same revolutionary that I um, that I had a T-shirt with his face on it when I was a child, Thomas Sankara. He had a quote about how it takes a certain kind of madness to bring about real change. I, and I've noticed when I read about um, the, the the revolutionaries that inspired the character of Tula, who goes up to become this leader of the movement, the Mandelas and Dr. Kings and Malcolm X and and Gandhi's and and men, even women, will who, who led um, the fight for, 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 for better women's rights. They have this, this sort of audacity that is not almost not human. It's as if you know, they, 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 they don't even see or think the way other people do to believe that I can hope and dream that we can fight and, and win this fight. And I really believe that we can. Whereas most people who are quote unquote normal, right, they would think, oh no, this is not even possible. What are we thinking? We can't even do this. But that madness gives you freedom in a way um, to dare, to dare in a way that that people who are 
quote-unquote sane and have so much to protect, right? When you have your, your job and your family in your home, and if you're in America, you have a mortgage and everything like that, you have so much to protect, it's less likely that you're going to want to take certain risk. And even these villagers, they have, they have quite a lot to protect. They, they, they want to live better lives, but they also don't want to stand the wrath of an American oil company and a powerful dictator. Um, but Conga doesn't have those fears. And so that is why I, 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 I saw him as the one who would sort of awaken these people. Um, I love that the, the Apple had a commercial about here's to the crazy ones, where he had all these pictures of men and women who changed history. And, and in their words, the, these people were crazy, and it was a celebration of that, of people who don't even think like the rest of us. They just go ahead. I mean, even, I, I even looked at somebody like Steve Jobs as part of you know, my research. I, I loved um, his, his biography by Walter Isaacson. And he had this sort of craziness also. And so I was very drawn to and fascinated by that. And, and both Conga and Tula somewhat fit into that, um, that scheme of madness. You know that saying that madness has genius in it. Mhm. Mm-hmm. That, that's right. I, I think that there's something to be said for that, and 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 we celebrated when when the madness does something that we um that that benefits us. But when when Conga stood up and said, "Let's do this," everybody said, "What are you talking about?" Uh, and and I, that is not to say that you know eventually his idea works out wonderfully, which I will not say why for people who haven't read it. But um, it, it is it is what set the stage for the village to awaken and to see that they also are powerful, right? This is a novel that is very much about power. It is about people awakening to the, to the fact that, yes, they, they are not a multinational American corporation, but they have their own powers and they can certainly put that up to use. And, and that idea for, for the villagers was awakened by, by, by Conga. There are other characters in the village that seem to have power, and I want to talk to Tula about Tula. We'll get to her next. There's some twins that are seen as being very powerful, and that mm-hmm. speaks to including um, Konga, but um, their names are Jakani mm-hmm. and Sakani. But you had mentioned earlier that there's a lot of supernatural elements in the storytelling and maybe fabric of these communities. And I also noticed superstition and mysticism and curses. I'm wondering if you could speak about that. This, this Jakani and Sakani, uh, they, are, um, they, are, they, they live somewhere between the, the physical and the spiritual world. And that is what they are. They are, they are of this world, but they are not from this world. So that gives them unique powers. Um, and it, that also came, like I said earlier, from my childhood where I grew up in a place where there was, there was an appreciation for the supernatural, the, an appreciation for the fact that we can't explain everything. I mean, certainly science cannot explain everything. And there are people who can do things that nobody understands how they're able to do it. Um, and so this whole village, it's, it's definitely um, a whole other level from where I grew up, because I didn't grow up with, with twins who had, who had such powers. But I grew up in a place where somebody, there were stories about somebody who paid um, a, a powerful um, medium money to send lightning to strike her enemy, right? So that, that kind of stuff happened. Um, there, was, there, was a, there, was an, there were occults. 
There were people who were known to be witches, so there were stories of witchcraft being done to kill people or to heal people. Uh, so all these stories uh, were very part of part of my childhood, and I didn't find find it to be strange. I was fascinated, but I didn't think I didn't disbelieve it. To put it that way, uh, I didn't disbelieve it. When I came to America, my friends certainly thought it was funny. They said, of course it didn't happen. That doesn't make any sense from a scientific angle. I, I, I wanted to honor that that idea that while we, while we believe we live in a physical world, that there's a, the, the, the line between the physical and, and, the, and, the, and the supernatural is very thin. And this village is somewhere there. I think, too, that there, there is a strong belief in curses, and you mentioned that in the book, and some feel, people feel cursed, and I could see how if you felt like you were under a curse, that it, mm-hmm. it equates directly to power, that you don't, you not only don't think you have power, but you don't even know that you could try to. Right, right. Yeah, and, and it is, and that is, yeah, the idea of curses and blessings is very much in the in the book, because that is the world in which I grew up also, where somebody, people could believe that they were cursed, which is why they cannot find a husband or they cannot get a job. Um, I don't know if you read Chigozio Bioma's wonderful debut novel, um, The Fisherman. That is a book about a, a group of brothers who... Um, there was a curse put on them by this madman, and the madman said, okay, you, this is a curse that's going to put on you. And just the idea that that curse was, was on them, even whether or not it was true, ended up like wreaking havoc on the entire family. Um, and But this is not only about curses, also about blessings. Right? They, they say, there's an emphasis on blessings in this novel, because people believe that I can curse you, but I can also bless you. Um, I, I remember when I went back home the last time I was talking to I was talking to um, to one of my cousin's friends and I don't know it came up something about somebody cursing cursing you and he said oh you know if somebody curses you and you know they're not related to you it doesn't really work it has to be somebody that you're related to and I thought about that about how how we believe in these things and, and how it can happen. So if you say, if you say your grandmother curses you, you can, you can, you know, you, you better be careful. Or if your grandmother blesses you, it's possible. That is also something that is part of my religious upbringing because the Bible is full of blessings and curses. <laughs> um, a lot of blessings, thankfully, but there's, there's, there are extents to which people go to, to get blessing. And so this, these villagers, Believing that the way they, they, the way they, they go back and forth between that sometimes they they, uh, they, uh, they fear that they have been cursed. At one point, they ask themselves if something that one of their ancestors did doomed them to this suffering that they're getting at the hands of Pexton. Other times, they believe that they're going to be blessed and their blessing is coming. So that that belief in blessing and curses very much plays a role in their psychology and how they think and how they be able to... To, to carry themselves forward. Like even in, the, in their worst moment, some of them still hold on to the belief that they will be blessed. Um, and, 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 and so it, it is, uh, I, I, now, it, now I'm talking about it, I find it interesting because I grew up in a, in a fairly traditional African society and I also had a religious upbringing and both of them were very big on blessings and curses. So maybe this more universal than I had thought before. In this story, your main character, aside from the communal 
aspect that everyone is kind of focused around is Tula. She's a young girl. She is, there's an innate tension already because you're, she's precocious and intelligent in a patriarchal society. She Mm -hmm. is very close to her father, but that relationship ends and she wants more. She's smart. She's not interested in just getting married. She really wants more for her life. And so I see her as someone who's both a product of being born that way and also being influenced by her father in early life and having a rebellious spirit. Can you talk a little bit about forming Tula? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She definitely was. It's a combination of being born that way and also having somebody who celebrated her as a child who said to her, you know, that, you know, you're wonderful. And, and when you grow up, don't forget to stay this, don't, don't forget to carry this wonderful child in you around. Um, so Tula was very much a creation of that fascination I have with revolutionaries. Um, she, she is, um, I put a lot of people I admire in her. So I, 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 I the, a lot of her, 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 the way she sees the world has to do with people who, growing up in Africa, I heard their stories. And there's, there's a great environmentalist, it's a late great environmentalist. Um, he was Nigerian. His name was Ken Sarowiwa. When I was a teenager, he, he led a movement to fight um, an oil company, the Shell Oil Company, because Shell Oil Company was destroying their land. And he led um, that movement to bring Shell to justice, at least to make Shell stop, stop destroying their land. And and he was um, he was hung to death by the by the the, the 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 government at that time because they didn't like his movement. And that was something that affected me very deeply when I was young because I remember not understanding why Kensalwewa and his um, his fellow tribes people they were called the Ogonis why Kensal Iwa and the Ogonis could not be allowed to live on, in a clean environment. So Tula certainly come, is, is, was inspired by Kensal Iwa amongst other, amongst other uh, revolutionaries and activists. Um, I grew up, um, like I said, being fascinated by, by the, another revolutionary called Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso. Um, I grew up at the time when, when I was a child, Mandela, Nancy Mandela was in prison. Um, and then I came to America, I, I heard about Dr. King, and I read quite a bit about Malcolm X. And so all these stories really put me in the mind of people who see the world differently and see their role in it differently. People who don't just think that it's okay to stand by and somebody else is going to make the tough choices to, to make the world better. They, they see themselves as the, as the ones responsible for making the world better. And that is Tula. She sees herself has been very responsible for, for, for saving her village from, from this oil company. And, and not only just, not just her village, ultimately she makes it into a bigger mission to save her entire country from this dictatorship. Um, and, and that comes at a, a, a bit, that comes with a lot of, uh, a lot of sacrifices for her. Uh, that isn't, for me, I she just she's so real because I I knew I I studied people like her. Of course, they were men. Right, all of the names I mentioned of the revolutionaries who who amazed me as a child were all men, and I basically just took a lot of what I admired in them and I put it in a woman. 
Yeah, I mean, she really chose, as we see her grow, to be married to the village and to be married to her cause. She wasn't going to do what most women do, get married and have children, which doesn't mean she hadn't found love in her life, but there was this greater cause for her. And one of the conundrums between her and the village and ultimately probably in real life situations is is there a point where you have to turn to violence? She was really against violence, but she, you know, these village villagers for a while, she wasn't there. They were just enduring and enduring and enduring. And at some point something breaks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and that is, uh, that was something that was inspired by the, uh, by Mandela and the, and the Ant, uh, African national Congress in South Africa, because this, the civil rights movement and the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa were, were inspirations for, for the movement that Tula led, um, but most people don't know that the anti-apartheid move—I mean, uh, the, the African National Congress in their struggle against against apartheid—that they did, they did resort to violence, not killing other humans, but but they did burn down buildings because they said, "You won't listen to us. We've tried everything, and we won't get your attention. So we're going to burn down your buildings." And and we somewhat saw similar events happening this past summer in the U.S. where. Um, Setting protesters for the Black Lives Matters, you know, caused, um, you know, set fire to property or, or um, try to destroy properties and, and stores and walk into stores. But there, there's this, um, there's this desperation sometimes when you feel as if you've done everything and you're doing everything and and you're not being listened to, and you think that violence is the is the is the best option. And and actually, when 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 the villagers um, First, decide to try something that is a little bit violent. Tula actually is, is not against it. She just draws the line, quite like Mandela and the anti-apartheid movement, um, when it comes to human life, because she considers human life to be sacred. So I, I, I wanted to. You know, it's not. It's not a matter of condoning violence. Uh, say human. I am. <laughs> I don't condone violence, and I certainly. Um, it breaks my heart whenever I hear of violence anywhere. But I, I wanted to just show the extent to which people are going to go sometimes to get their attention when they feel as if they've been oppressed for too long and, and they have been ignored for too long and, and what, they are, what they're willing to do. Um, and I, because, again, in, in the case of what happened in, in South Africa, I remember I was reading somewhere and it said how the Amnesty International refused to, to help the anti-apartheid movement, because they said, well, you um, you guys are using violence and we cannot condone that. But for me, I had to look at it as a novelist, I had to look at it, not not about condoning it or not, but just look at it from their perspective and, and to ask myself, well, can you understand why they did what they did? Without judging it, can you at least understand why they thought that the, the battle was so stacked, you know, against them with this fight against this multinational that the least they could do was try to get the multinational to, to fear them a little bit by using violence. Do you think personally or or for your book that there there is hope? Well, this, this is a story about hope. And I was doing an interview and I said that and, and the person said, you really think so? But I, I think that this is a story about hope. Um, I certainly wouldn't write it if I <laughs> didn't have hope myself because it was a very difficult book to write for, for obvious reasons. Um, I, I, I am, 
I, I began writing this because I'm fascinated by people who are so hopeful that they're willing to even risk their own life for a cause. I mean, Dr. King probably knew he was, he knew he was going to be probably killed, and he still went out there and stood in front of people because he had hope, right? Malcolm X, you know, was, they were dead against him, and he still went there and stood in front of people because he had hope. I mean, they were both, none of them, both of them didn't live to be 40, but they had hope. And I think that that is also what this novel is, it's a celebration of hope. It's a celebration of, of people who have this incredible ability to hope despite the circumstances. And that, that is something that comes, you mentioned asked earlier about me being a person of faith. That's something that certainly comes from my upbringing where um, in the Christian faith, there's a big emphasis on, 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 on faith. Uh, and, it's, and Dr. King was a man of faith also. And I think that that, that faith drove him to do what he did. And, and, I, and I think that whether or not you're a person of faith, you know, you can still have hope. And so I, I, I wanted to celebrate that. It's really, you know, because I was writing this novel, finishing it in 2016 to 2019, when it wasn't exactly the most wonderful time in America, right? We were, there was a lot of division and negativity in the country. But there were people who still woke up every day and did the best because they had hope that, um, that you know, this too shall pass. And, and even in this moment right now, um, we are all... Um, not being able to do many things because of a pandemic, but there are many, many people who wake up every day and have hope that it's going to get better. And that is what the villagers had. They had, a, they had an incredible amount of hope, and I, I wanted to celebrate that. There's one scene where Conga, there's some repercussions from some of the actions that the villagers took on early on, and for a little bit, he's in prison. He was not treated well. He was treated the worst of everybody. But there was just a quick sentence where you're talking about how he's singing in prison and what mm-hmm. it, the impact it had, and it was a very luminous moment. And I'm mm-hmm. wondering about the power of music, maybe in your life, maybe in instances such as these and it, mm. uh, writing that little tiny scene. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and that is not the only part where there's music, right? This is in, this is a village where there's, there's quite a bit of singing. <laughs> um, there's a point where some um, Americans come to help them and the villagers all burst into song. Um, and, and so the, and it's weddings and lots of singing but I, I noticed and that whenever people are inv- involved in protesting, in marching, in a struggle, there's quite a lot of singing. I, some of my favorite music was, is music from the anti-apartheid movement when, you know, when South Africans were marching and struggling and they were singing. Uh, and I, I love the music from the civil rights movement. Um, uh, just I love like Nina Simone and all that music that comes from from a place of hope somewhat, or, or dreaming, or believing, or talking about your struggle. So, and even even recently, when we, you know, with the Black Lives Movement or the Women's March, people were singing a lot. So, it is part of, it, it is part of expressing ourselves by right? singing. is is an it's an art form, and I think that um, when we're going through such times, um, we seem to bring ourselves solace. We seem to give ourselves strength. Um, and we sing because we really want to believe that it's going to get better. And so that is, um, 
that is where that came from. The music in, in the book, and it was similar to the music that I, the, the kind of music and the singing that I saw in, this, in the movements that inspired um, the one in the story. Can you read a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer? Well, I'm going to read a passage from a book that I'm reading right now. This is a this is a this is a first book. Um, so it didn't influence me as a writer, but certainly inspiring inspiring me right now. Um, because she's a wonderful writer. Um, her name is Suleika Jaud, and the book is Between Two Kingdoms: A Memoir of a Life Interrupted. I used to read her column for the New York Times. She 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 wrote she had a column for the New York Times talking about what it was like. Um, having cancer at 22. And so this column was about, you know, just the the struggles and the treatments and the decisions, and it was so wonderful. So she writes so beautifully and so, it's just such excellent way of really taking you into what it's like to go through cancer treatment and to to show um, the pain and the confusion and, and also the hope, right? The hope because you have to... She, she had a lot of hope that she would get better, even though she had a moments of doubt. And so at, the, at this point, she's in remission. She's mostly beating the cancer, um, even though she's, you know, she's still in danger because she had leukemia. So she's, she's so, somewhat you know, past the cancer, but she still has, um, she still has to, to live with it in a way because it's still in her mind and she has to, to live with the fear of when is it coming back. So I'm just going to read a, a little, um, a quick paragraph from after she's finished her treatment and she's in remission, right after she met another cancer survivor and they were talking about, you know, all their struggles. And that, this was after she's reflecting on the conversation she had with this other cancer survivor whose name was Brett. That night, I begin to, I begin to think about how porous the border is between the sick and the world. It's not just people like Brett and me who exist in the wilderness of survivorship. As we live longer and longer, the vast majority of us will travel back and forth across these realms, spending much of our lives somewhere in between. These are the terms of our existence. The idea of striving for some beautiful, perfect state of wellness, it mires us in eternal dissatisfaction, a goal forever forever out of reach. To be well now is to learn to accept whatever body and mind I currently have. Again, I am so inspired by her honesty, obviously, because as a writer, you know, I just I, I, I strive for honesty, and and I'm not I don't see myself ever writing a memoir because it's not it's not where I think my strengths are. That uh, it's always a joy to read a, a painful story rendered so beautifully. Um, it reminds me of um, Sonali. Then Denga, Denga, I've forgotten her last name. So Nali, she got a book name called Wave. This was about how she lost her family um, in the tsunami of 2004. So Sonali, last name D, um, I don't remember the full last name. Um, and it was just a beautiful, painful book about this incredible tragedy of losing her family in this tsunami. And this book reminds me of that because it's... Um, to get cancer at 22 and to to basically feel as if your life is ending when your friends just finish college and they're all carrying on and getting new jobs and moving to new apartments and having fun and you're sitting in a cancer ward. Um, it could have been many different kinds of book, but she made it into something beautiful. And it also has a, a great deal of humor. I found myself laughing several times 
Um, and so certainly it's, it's been a very inspiring read. Can you read a passage you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yeah, so I'll read the beginning of my novel, um, How Beautiful We Were. We should have known the end was near. How could we not have known? When the sky began to pour acid and rivers began to turn green, we should have known that our land would soon be dead. Then again, how could we have known when they didn't want us to know? When we began to wobble and stagger, tumbling and snapping like feeble little branches, they told us it would soon be over, that we would all be well in no time. They asked us to come to village meetings to talk about it. They told us we had to trust them. So that is the beginning of my novel, which um, that, that must be the two millionth draft of, you know, of that story. Um, I, I, like I said earlier, I started writing it. I, it was in the first person, uh, first person, first person singular. I'm sorry. It was told from just from Tula's perspective. I must have tried many, 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 many different beginnings. It's quite an ordeal <laughs> trying to figure out where the story starts. But when I went back to the story in 2016, after having put it aside to write Behold the Dream as my first novel, when I went back to this story in 2016, I had so much clarity. I was more educated on environmental degradation, and I was thinking a lot about children. And, and again, I had been inspired by Julius Sukas, the Buddha in the Arctic. So from all these years of, of sitting with the story, not writing it, everything seemed to flow a lot easier. And I think that that is one of the advantages I had that I went back to this story in 2016. A, because I've taken such a long break from it uh, for, for about five years, I'd barely written it. And B, I went back to it in 2016 when the country was um, also a, a toxic environment in some ways. I mean, the negativity during the 2016 elections was, was mind-boggling. And so I, maybe I was in that space where I was thinking about even what it's like to be a child during the 2016 election and all that all that, all the, the, the toxic rhetoric. Uh, and, and of course, I was thinking about children in other places in the country, I was, I mean, Sandy Hook and Flint, Michigan, and, and all the children whose life had been offended by violence and by choices made by adults who don't really consider what their choices would do to children. And so because I'd been sitting on it for so long, when I went back to it, that, that paragraph flowed a lot easier and it just came together. Where do you write? Where do I write? Well, in this book, I wrote it in my living room, on my dining table. That was nothing, nothing too interesting, just dining room table. Um, right now, I'm not writing, so and I don't... Um, I mean, I am writing, I'm just not as focused on a novel. Uh, so I don't exactly have a space so much. I just make do with whatever. But on, for both of my novels, I wrote them at, the, at my dining room table. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Uh, what do I do? Well, I hang out with my friends. I, or I call. I hang out with my family. I, I go for a walk. Once in a while, I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Nothing like a good, good YouTube video to, to, to give you some needed distraction. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I don't have a wood I share it to because my, both of my novels were very different as far as the journey. So, I mean, that's, I, I don't exactly have, I mean, it depends, it depends what I'm writing and, and, and what stage it is. I show many different people. There's no, there's no one person. 
How have you dealt with rejection? Oh, I, I carry on. I just keep on carrying on. What is your favorite word? Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Mbolo Mbue, author of the novel, How Beautiful We Were. If you like today's show, check out my interview with Bettina Gappa, a Zimbabwean writer whose novel, Out of Darkness, Shining Light, is based on the true life pilgrimage in 19th century Africa when more than 70 Africans carried the dead body of the English explorer David Livingston across the continent to a ship that would carry his body back to Britain. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of 300 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft ADOW. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interview that didn't make it to the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping this show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Diane Seuss, Gabriela Garcia, Marissa Silver, Stephen Pressfield, and Ethan Rutherford. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.